Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, we head to the Big Easy to talk with Louisiana Senator Royce Duplissis. Although he's in the super minority politically, he's been able, through a committed persistence, to pass important legislation to reform criminal justice, respond to natural disasters, and help working families with the earned income tax credit. We talk about his unexpected path to office, working across party lines, and how his state is looking to make the transition to renewable energy. If you care about New Orleans, blue cities and red states, or helping communities that have been neglected for too long, this conversation's for you. Enjoy. Louisiana Senator Royce Duplissis, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Louisiana is never dull in any area, but especially in politics. What is going on in the state politically right now? A whole lot. A whole lot. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we have a new governor. Louisiana was one of the only states, if not the only state, to have a Democratic governor in the Deep South. We had a Democratic governor for the past two terms. And most recently, the state elected the new governor, who was our former attorney general, who was a Donald Trump endorsed, pretty far right leading candidate. And he won outright with no runoff. So there's been a major shift just from that perspective. And his new term and all the legislature's new terms just began in January. And we've already undergone one legislative session to deal with our congressional map redrawings, which we can certainly talk about. But I'm sure as you can imagine, and as our listeners can imagine, to have a Democratic governor who was conservative on on several fronts, but he was still there for us on a lot of issues, very pragmatic and really focused on governing. Now we have a new governor who is seeming to be going in a much different direction on a lot of important policy issues. So getting used to this new governor, trying to learn what his governing style is going to be like, but now gearing up for a lot of potential policies that we believe are going to be harmful. So there's a big shift right now going on in the state as it relates to Louisiana politics. Yeah. And I've, you're in the minority in the, in the Senate. And so you, to move legislation requires all kinds of maneuvering, compromise, and, and I don't know what, we're going to get into it. You served on the new governor's transition team, which I thought was interesting given your, that you're at different parties. Can you talk a little bit about sort of why you chose to do that and what it was like? Absolutely. Well, number one, I did not expect to be asked to do it. So when I was first asked, I went to my wife and I said, what do you think about this? And she was like, well, you have to do it. And, and the reality is she was right. I had to do it. I think as a, as a leader, as someone who wants to get things done, you have to work with the other side. And you mentioned the fact that I serve already in the minority. I'm already in not just the minority, but the super minority. So to get anything passed, I have to work with the other side. So I didn't 
view my role in serving on the governor's transition committee as being any different than what I already do in the legislature, which is to sit at the table, to sit around people who I am philosophically in disagreement with on several policy fronts and try to come up with some compromise. So I didn't see it any differently. And I felt like for me to not participate, then that means I'm choosing to not be a part of decisions that are being made around my city because he created this special task force or transition council just focused on the city of New Orleans, which was unprecedented. So while I certainly had my concerns, I be- I believed it was my obligation to be involved. And a lot of it raised a lot of question marks for some, but people who know my reputation, people who know what I'm about, I think they knew that they could trust me going in this room and advocating for the best interests of New Orleans. And that's what I did. And the report was actually just released on Friday. And now the media is kind of writing about it and giving their take on it. And to the surprise of many, there are a lot of good recommendations that came out of that that committee. And I think in, in large part, because you had people like myself in the room. Yeah, I want to appreciate that. That's a big effort at leadership to try to work across the aisle. It's easy for us all to just say, forget it. Yeah. You're on the bad team. I'm on the good team. But to go into that room and try to shape things. And now you're seeing a result. It's well done. Yeah, yeah, we're we're certainly trying. And of course, the devil's in the details. And it's all about implementation. These are just recommendations. But in many ways, goes back to why I choose to do this. Again, I don't think serving on the committee was any different than me serving in the legislature. If I just simply throw up my hands and say, well, what's the point? Then then I really don't have any business even being in elected office. So it's, it's just a reality of where we are today. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamic between New Orleans and the state at large? As you mentioned, there's there's a historic tension there. There's obviously political differences. How do you navigate that dynamic in order to get services and impact for your city? Sure. So if you look at any conservative state, any red state, any southern state, New Orleans is not unlike other cities where you have other blue cities in red states, where you have just a built-in tension, where the state capital and the rest of the state that might be conservative is usually at odds with the policies and the leadership of those blue cities. So New Orleans is not just that city for Louisiana, but we also just so happen to be the economic generator for Louisiana. We are in many ways the crown jewel. And that's to no knock of the rest of the beautiful state of Louisiana. But people come to New Orleans, they travel here. It's, you know, I I don't have to tell you all the great things about New Orleans. We're having a Super Bowl here next year. And as New Orleans goes, so does the state of Louisiana. And I think the state and this new governor recognizes this and is, I hope, willing to kind of put put aside some of the, the historical practices of trying to punish the city of New Orleans when we don't agree on certain policies and really trying to work with us to to make us this, to help us become the city that we can be. That's the space that we're in right now. And that's also a big part of the reason why I chose to be on this transition committee. For example, you asked about the, the relationship just a little bit over a year ago when I was actually running for the Senate because I started in the state house. The now governor was attorney general and he served on what's called the State Bond Commission. And the State Bond Commission, they're involved in making decisions around capital outlay money being sent to different cities and entities. So our sewer and water department is seeking funding from the state. We have critical issues of underfunding. We have critical issues around flooding and infrastructure. But right after the road decision was struck down, 
the New Orleans City Council made a decision and said that they were not going to prosecute anyone around choices related to their a woman's health or health care. Our attorney general said he basically blocked money from getting to the city of New Orleans sewer and water uh, department as a political stunt to say, because we took a position around something that has nothing to do with infrastructure, that he would punish the city of New Orleans for taking that stance. Those are the kind of things that we deal with with that in that relationship. Really unfortunate and unproductive stuff. At the end of the day, it really threatens the health and, and safety of, of the people. So those are the kind of challenges we have. One of the things that strikes me when I look at your history is you have a real passion for the environment and you have a passion for justice. And New Orleans seems to be at the center of those intersections as we think about historically Katrina and flooding and just other host of environmental justice issues. Can you talk about sort of those specific issues, why they matter to you personally, and then what you're trying to do in, as you said, a super minority in a very difficult political situation? Yeah, you know, I really got awakened in many ways, if you will, like many of us did. Hurricane Katrina sort of lifted the veil of many of the inequities and and injustices with respect to environmental decisions that have been made historically throughout this nation. And Hurricane Katrina just sort of raised the veil on that. So when when I ended up in law school in D.C. about a year or two after Hurricane Katrina, I ended up getting internships at the EPA and White House Council on Environmental Quality. It was just something that I became very curious and passionate about and something that I still try to prioritize today in my work in the state legislature. But it it expands just beyond levees. It expands just beyond flooding. And even if you go upriver to what we call the river parishes, we have a huge petrochemical industry. And that petrochemical industry, while it has been a mainstay for the Louisiana economic survival and and what we sort of have been known for our energy economy. It's also been a major challenge for poor, primarily black communities in, in, in that area for really harmful outcomes in terms of health. And it's an issue that has gotten some national attention. I think it's gotten a lot of attention from this administration at the federal level, this, this Biden administration, but we still have so much more work to do around addressing policies that, that that deal with environmental injustice in our state. So, you know, on one hand, we try to protect our energy economy, but on the other hand, we have to make sure we're protecting the health of citizens. So recently, I actually traveled to Rhode Island to see the offshore wind economy and the turbines out there, because believe it or not, Louisiana is actually very well positioned to be a leader in renewables. So as we try to move into the future, we have to be leaders on leading into this this renewable economy. Offshore wind, we are very well positioned to be a leader on that. There's been a lot of movement around um, carbon capture, you know, which I'm sort of I still have questions about. But you know, as we move to deal with issues around our economy, we also need to be thinking about our environment. So those are those are areas that I'm also trying to trying to push our state on. Do you think there's a an appetite for this shift, and how do you? How do you accelerate the interest? Yeah, there, there is. Believe it or not, in this legislature, you know, when I went to Rhode Island, I was the only Democrat on the trip. I was with a bunch of my Republican colleagues who've all recognized and many of them see, look, this is an opportunity. So I think, I mean, look, we haven't completely gotten past some of the rhetoric and, and some of the belief that just because you're talking about renewables, that 
oh, you're for this whole radical Green New Deal when it's not as politically divisive. We are making some headway across the aisle on this issue because people see the see the opportunity and they see that's where things are headed. So I'm optimistic. Something else I want to see if you're also optimistic about is, as you mentioned, there's the redrawing of congressional lines and it's become a big national issue. As we record this, it's January 30th and big decisions are, are being made. Can you give us the state of the maps and what you think the implications are legally, politically, and from just a basic voting rights perspective? Absolutely. So we've been at this almost three years now. And I was in the House, as I mentioned, I served as vice chair of House and Governmental. So after the census, I was basically the lead voice on the Democratic side and for the Black Caucus with respect to redrawing our congressional maps, our state House and Senate maps, and all the maps that we had to do for redistricting. As we expected, of course, they did not, they being the majority of my colleagues, would not pass maps that were constitutional. So when litigation ensued, the federal judge here in Baton Rouge struck down the map as unconstitutional and ordered us back to to redraw the maps. Went through all kinds of protracted litigation, appellate, U.S. Supreme Court. We saw the Alabama decision, which really gave us a pathway to draw a second black district in Louisiana. Louisiana is made up of 33% African-American. We have six congressional seats where only one is a seat where African-Americans can choose their candidate of choice. So we got this new governor. We were sworn in at the beginning of January. And, you know, to the surprise of many, he came in and basically said, look, we're not going to fight this anymore. We're not going to litigate this anymore. We're going to pass a map that is constitutional. We're going to pass a map that's on the right side of history. And that's what we did. Now, the map that did get passed, it was not the map that we, me being in the Legislative Black Caucus with the support of the Legal Defense Fund, it is not the map that we filed and, and fought for, but the map that my Republican colleagues put forward and the one that we ultimately passed is a map that we can live with. It's a map that we believe is in compliance with the Voting Rights Act and gives us that opportunity to select that second African-American seat. So that map was passed and you already have people who have announced their candidacy for the race. So we'll see what the judge says. I'm sure there'll be a legal challenge, but we think it'll it'll hold up in court. So that's a huge win for the state of Louisiana. I mean, it's a huge win for our nation, for democracy and for voting rights. Yeah, I feel like in recent years, we've had just so much bad news around voting rights and partisan districting. I'm wondering if maybe you think this is a model forward and that maybe, just maybe, we can get to a place where we are going to have elected representatives who reflect their populace. I certainly hope so, because it's such a foundational issue. You know, you really can't even get to debating the real things like energy policy or environmental policy or wage policy or anything if we don't have fair representation. If the people feel like we can't even be heard and that there aren't folks that represent us, that look like us, that think like us, that come from our communities, that share our values... So to me, this is such a foundational issue. I certainly hope that we can show leadership going forward to at least be willing to say we're going to we're going to have fair maps drawn. Look, I'm I'm not naive and not believing that, you know, you get one step forward. Sometimes it's two steps back. Right. There There will be setbacks, but it's a it's a big win. And I certainly hope that we can continue moving in this direction. 
Can you talk a little bit about your personal journey? How did you find yourself in this position, serving on a Republican governor's transition committee, fighting for maps, doing all the work you're doing? Is this something that you have had planned for a long time or has this been thrust upon you? Yeah, I never I never saw myself in this role, never saw myself in public service. I didn't know much about politics growing up, honestly. And I'll try to give you the short version. So I was maybe 23 years old, I think. It was right after Hurricane Katrina. And I was actually planning to go to law school. And a friend of mine, his law partner was, this was my my oldest brother, his his friend, very good friend. He had a law partner who was running for the city council. And I had a little extra time on my hands. So they asked me just to volunteer. We were going door to door and I just really just loved it. And he ended up winning. And then he asked me to be his chief of staff. So I deferred law school for a year to help him set up his office. And it was really just an eye opening experience and in many ways, a life changing experience. But even at that time, I never thought that I would run for office. I thought it would it was something that it was an experience that I was glad I had because it opened my eyes up to the importance of leadership and good policy making and kind of seeing how the sausage gets made. But I wasn't quite sure that I was the one to make that kind of sacrifice because I saw what what it took. So it still took several years, maybe a decade later after going to law school and working for a law firm and working for the Supreme Court, getting some policy experience, but it was never intentional. So it almost ended up being a situation where I didn't seek it out. It kind of sought me out because back in 2017, a state house seat opened up and I had moved to a whole different part of town. When my wife and I got engaged, I was in an entirely new part of town and I had been there long enough to be legally domiciled to qualify when this house seat opened up and I'd gotten encouragement to run for the seat. But my experience having worked as um, special counsel for the Louisiana Supreme Court, that had me at the state capitol working on criminal justice reform policy and serving as a serving on, on the New Orleans City Planning Commission as chairman and volunteering in the community. I just always had a desire to serve. And I never believed that you had to be elected to serve, but I I knew I had a certain experience level. And I do believe that we're all called to serve. And I felt like this was the highest and best use of my professional experience and my desire to serve because not everybody has policy experience and not everybody really has the desire to serve in this way. Cause I have, I have three brothers and same upbringing for the most part. And they, they would run. I mean, just at the idea of even like, it's like not even a conversation that would come up for them. The, the idea to do this. I mean, they'll help me put signs up, but that's probably the extent of it. So I think it's something that really comes from within. It's really, I think it's a calling and never really viewed it as a career per se, but it's something that, you know, that I'm very passionate about and I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to do it. Tell me about what you found, right? Like even those who are involved in policy, being an elected is a whole new ball game. The stakes go up. It's just much more challenging. Your brothers are probably totally sane yeah. for thinking that they <laughs> yeah. would never do it. So tell me how it's been. Yeah, it has been difficult yet rewarding. When I first ran, my wife was, we were expecting, and I was elected during a special session. My daughter was born just a few weeks later, and it's been nonstop ever since. And one of the big challenges, and I know it's different for every state, but for me in Louisiana, me and my colleagues, you know, they say it's a part-time job. We make $16,000 a year. 
and you get one legislative assistant. So the practical side of serving is really challenging in the state legislature here in Louisiana, because unless you're independently wealthy or unless you have some kind of trust fund or you're retired, it's really difficult. You have to have a situation that allows you to have the flexibility to still earn earn a living. So that in and of itself presents a challenge. But for me, it's been incredibly rewarding because I have my own law practice that gives me some flexibility. But look, serving, coming from New Orleans, having being a Democrat and serving in an overwhelmingly Republican legislature, there's nothing easy about it. But I tell you, the most gratifying thing isn't always to get a big piece of legislation across the finish line. Sometimes it's just helping somebody in your district get help with a government agency, you know, the Office of Motor Vehicles or, you know, helping them get something done that they they were never able to get done until they called their representative or their senator. To me, that's the most gratifying thing. And I mean, I just I wouldn't trade that for the world. So we have been able to find some wins throughout all of the, the challenging debates and being in a in a super minority, you often play in defense, but you know, we were still able to get past legislation that restricts the use of solitary confinement for juveniles. You know, that's, that was a big, big deal, big piece of legislation. You know, I was able to do legislation that extended the earned income tax credit, you know, in a super overwhelmingly Republican legislature, passing legislation like limiting the release of mugshots. That is something that when you think about getting those types of things done, it's very rewarding. It takes a lot of work, but we've been able to get some wins in between there. Yeah, when I'm reading your your legislative body of work, I mean, I'm really impressed with the amount of stuff you've been able to do in criminal justice reform. And one would think in a super minority situation, it'd be incredibly difficult. How did you build the coalition necessary to get those those policies across the finish line? Yeah, I mean, I think if you go back to just what you started off with at the beginning, pointing out the fact that I, I served on the task force for the new governor, and even though that was most recently, if I had the type of attitude to say that, nope, I'm not even going to talk or engage, then I think it's really difficult to get things done that way. To sit down and work out compromises doesn't believe mean that you, you give up your values or that you change what you believe in. To sit down with someone who you disagree with doesn't mean that you're surrendering and it doesn't mean you don't keep fighting for what you believe in. The idea is to make progress. It's not to score a touchdown every single time. And I wish that on both sides, we would get back to understanding that we can maintain our values and we can be fierce advocates for what we believe in. But our job as policymakers is literally to compromise. So I go into it with that attitude on everything that I work with. And I just think there's a place just for being respectful to people, to be kind to people, and just to restore a level of civility to this process that is lacking at every level, federal, state, local, you name it. We can choose our echo chambers and just block out anybody who disagrees with us and only talk to people who are going to affirm what we want to say. And I think it's really killing us. I really do. So I know what I'm saying is pie in the sky to a lot of people and people want to dismiss what I'm saying. And and that's fine. I mean, that's fine. But I'm thinking about my daughter. I'm thinking about my grandchildren, if I ever have any, and just future generations that they expect of us to do the hard work. And I'm not suggesting that I've figured it out because I have not figured it out. But I know if we don't sit down and talk and try to work together, nothing's going to happen. I know that for certain. So on criminal justice, how did you start those conversations in order to get to policy when there's probably so much you disagree with each other on? 
Yeah, so we had laid some foundation back in 2016 and 2017, not just in Louisiana, but nationally. There was an effort to try to really rethink a lot of the tough on crime policies that really hadn't make, made our communities any safer. So not only had they not made our communities any safer, we were spending an arm and a leg here in Louisiana, almost a billion dollars a year on incarceration. We're the most incarcerated state in the nation, but we're not any safer as a result. So we did justice reinvestment. We passed a, a sweeping package of legislation that was aimed at going after or trying to deal with low-level nonviolent offenders and shortening those sentences so we can take the savings and reinvest them on front-end preventative measures as well as reentry measures to really try to stop the, the level of recidivism. So we had already kind of had that in place where we had changed the tone a lot in the Louisiana legislature. So I certainly leaned into that. And then, like, for example, on the piece around the juvenile solitary confinement legislation, we brought personal testimony into the committee and it was so moving and it was so troubling, right? But moving at the same time that a lot of my colleagues saw that this is really an issue about humanity. And this is really an issue about how do we have accountability when a young person makes a mistake, sometimes really bad mistakes, but we want to make it so that when they get out, our community is safer and that, they, that they're on the right path. So just really trying to make the case. And we had a lot of very powerful testimony and committee and just trying to lay out the facts and just being persistent and talking to my colleagues that this just isn't doing it this way without some sort of framework in place won't make us any safer. It's actually it's actually less safe for the guards, it's less safe for the young people and it's less safe for our community when these young people are released. So I think that's how we were able to make progress on that legislation and my um, expungement legislation which basically removes all the fees and makes it easier for people to get expungements. That took a couple of years. That took almost four, four to five years to get passed. Wow. Yeah. So I'd say maybe, maybe some persistence, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it is. I mean, part of this is like people are looking for these magic wands. Part of it is just the grind, right? And sticking with it. There is no magic wand. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope that your legislation serves as a model both from a policy perspective, but also from a moral perspective, that other states will follow suit and we can transform potentially thousands and hundreds of thousands of lives through this work. I got to close with just getting your advice. If people are planning a trip to New Orleans, if they're coming for the Super Bowl next year, what's your hint? What do people need to see that's the essence of the New Orleans away from away from Bourbon Street, but but will make their trip incredibly worthwhile? Yeah, thanks so much for asking that question. When people think New Orleans, uh, obviously people automatically think French Quarter, they think Bourbon Street, and we want them to think that, but there's so much more. You know, we have a beautiful riverfront, and that riverfront is going to be developed even, even more. Hopefully, we have some more things in place when people get here for the Super Bowl. But look, we have festivals all the time. There's, I don't think there's a weekend you can come to New Orleans and not get a festival, but come and eat the food listen to the music, see the festivities. We have museums. We have all sorts of tourism attractions throughout this city that just don't align Bourbon Street. Come and see the architecture, come and see the homes and just get out and visit. It's a beautiful place. We, we've we had our challenges, but I think we're moving in the right direction. But get off the beaten path. There's, there's too many restaurants to recommend, quite frankly. <laughs> I would definitely say just pick your spots depending on what your taste buds are telling you. But it's a wonderful town. You can walk around. You don't have to. 
they have a car. You can just kind of move around because it's kind of easy to get everywhere in the city of New Orleans. But we got some big, big developments underway. And I'm just hoping that by the time people get here before Super Bowl, that they see the beauty and they're able to take in some of the culture that they're going to experience when they get here. Well, I love it. I love your city. I can't wait to find my way back. We also love having you in the New Deal. It's great to have your persistent leadership showing us, especially those who are working in minority situations or super minority states, where how they can find a path forward and make a difference in people's lives. So thank you for all you do. And thank you for being part of New Deal. Thank you. I'm honored to be a part of it and grateful for the opportunity to talk today. Thanks so much. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.